Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Catholic News. My name is Chris Mihalik. The source of our program is denvercatholic.org. The Inseparable Keys to Lent, Repentance and Belief by Archbishop Samuel J. Aquila. Ashes, the refuse that remains when fire has consumed something, remind us of the humble dust from which we were made and our place before God. Throughout Scripture we see that the call to repent is often accompanied with the use of ashes paired with the exhortation to believe. As we look ahead to the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday, February 22nd this year, these gifts of repentance and belief are the necessary foundation for faithfully following Jesus. Let's dive into them. The best way to understand repentance and belief are to look at the Our Father. Jesus begins this perfect prayer by first teaching us to praise the Father's name and work for the establishment of the Kingdom of God on earth through the Father's will being followed. The establishment of the Kingdom is the disciples' mission, and it remains our mission today. After giving the Church its mission, Jesus proceeds to equip us for it by instructing us to ask the Father for mercy, for forgiveness, and a willingness to forgive others, and for protection from temptation and the influence of evil. The Father, as St. Thomas Aquinas said, is the most perfect of prayers. In it we ask not only for all the things we can rightly desire, but also in a sequence that they should be desired. This prayer not only teaches us to ask for things, but also in what order we should desire them, so that this prayer is not only teaches us to ask, but also directs us our affections. Here, St. Thomas Aquinas touches on an aspect of the spiritual life that can be easy to neglect. True repentance involves not just saying we're sorry for sins we have committed, it also means allowing our affections and our desires to be exposed to the light and converted. While this can be uncomfortable, it is ultimately freeing. St. Francis de Sales speaks about the depth of, of conversion required by using the analogy of a sick man whose doctor has told him that he must refrain from sweets or he might die. He refrains from eating them, St. Francis notes, but most unwillingly he talks about them and measures how far he may transgress and envies those who can indulge in what is forbidden to him. Introduction to the Devout Life, Chapter 7. When we talk about avoiding the near occasion of sin, this means being vigilant for both the circumstances of temptation and bringing our misguided desires to the Lord for healing. Our hearts and wills must be cleansed from attachments to sin. That's something beyond our own power. These depths of repentance require trust in the Father's plan for us and in His goodness, in other words, belief. We see this pattern play out in salvation history. John the Baptist was sent to call the people to repentance, and then, after he was arrested by Herod, Jesus began proclaiming, This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15 
As we enter into deeper belief in the gospel, we hand over areas of our life that we might have refused to bring to the Lord before, especially the freedom found in forgiveness. We trust and have confidence in the promises Jesus has given to us. We turn to him with all of our burdens, sins, and wounds, confident that he will lead, forgive, and give us rest. We learn from Jesus how to live in relationship with the Father and others. Conversion is not just a one-time event. It's a lifelong process of repentance and belief that only finishes when we meet Jesus face-to-face in eternity. This Lent, let us strive anew to repent and believe, allowing Jesus to conform us to Him. Memo to Gen Z Catholics Why Vatican II is Still Important by George Weigel Mr. Adam Lucas, who is newly married with a baby on the way, and has a master's in theology, speaks for a depressing number of Gen Z Catholics when he writes on the Crisis website that the world of the 1960s is gone and with it any real relevance of Vatican II. The council, he concludes, should just be ignored. After all, aggiornamental demands it. This is so mind-numbingly wrong-headed that one hardly knows where to start in responding to it. Mr. Lucas's lament seems to be the result of a number of blogosphere contentions about the council, ignited by two Ross Duthat op-eds in the New York Times. I hope I won't be thought excessively self-referential, however, if I note that Mr. Lucas fails to mention my recent book, To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II, which is being read by large numbers of Gen Z seminarians and students. These men and women seem to find the book helpful in understanding why Vatican II was necessary, what the Council actually taught, wholly unremarked in Mr. Lucas's article, and how Vatican II was given its authoritative interpretation by two men of the Council, Karol Wojtyła, and Joseph Ratzinger in their patrine ministries as Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. Perhaps Mr. Lucas should also have a go, and before that baby arrives, after which he will get very little sleep for a while. But in case he doesn't get around to the book, let me briefly outline why Vatican II was from lacking any real relevance today is utterly relevant to the chief contentions of the moment. What is the bottom line issue in the Catholic conflict over over synodality? The bottom line, whether in Germany or in the preparations of the World Synod of Bishops in October 23, is whether divine revelation is real and has binding authority over time. The most vociferous proponents of synodality, like Cardinal Hollerich and McElroy, seem to think not. They imagine that our contemporary experience judges and corrects what we have been taught by scripture of the great tradition of the Church. Vatican II's dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, Dei Verbum, robustly affirms that God has spoken into history, first to the people of Israel, and then definitely in the person of the incarnate Word. Do we know better than God about what makes for human 
flourishing and beatitude? The council says no. Score one for Vatican two. What is the bottom line issue in the culture war afflicting Western culture across the globe? The bottom of that bottom line is whether human beings are really just bundles of desires, all of which are morally equal and should be acknowledged as legitimate in the name of human rights. By contrast, Vatican II's pastoral constitution of the Church in the modern world taught that the truth about our humanity is revealed in life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we learn that we are creatures of a much nobler nature and destiny, and that self-giving, not self-assertion, is freedom lived in a truly human way. Score another one for Vatican II. Where do we find answers to postmodernity's quest for authentic human community? Walkery is a word of silos in which race mania, gender identity, and isms of all sorts are somehow supposed to foster living in solidarity. Vatican II's dogmatic constitution of the Church teaches that the Church, in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28, is a template, the sacrament, as the Council put it, of authentic human community, the experience of which can lead to building solidarity in society. Score yet another one for Vatican II. How does the West rebuild the shattered foundations of its culture? Vatican II as authentically interpreted by John Paul II and Benedict XVI teaches that a great awakening to the truths on which our civilization was built will come through a new evangelization in which every Catholic, as affirmed by Lumen Gentium and by the Council's decree on the apostolate of the laity, understands himself or herself to have been baptized into a missionary vocation bringing others to friendship with Jesus Christ. Game set and match to Vatican II. Dear Gen Z brethren, please stop confusing the blogosphere with reality, and please read what Vatican II actually taught. You find more relevance than you imagine or that any of us can deploy in a lifetime. The real issue in the fetal pain debate by guest contributor Wendy Smith registered nurse. The human brain is an extremely complex human organ. Neurons are the specialized cells that transmit nerve impulses. In order to pass the impulse from one neuron to another, neurons have dendrites, which extend out from the cell body. Dendrites receive the impulse and carry it to the cell body. Neurons also have arms that extend out from the cell body called axons which transmit the impulses away from the neurons to other neurons or tissues. They communicate with one another over junctions called synapses. It has been estimated that 86 billion neurons, along with innumerable synapses, dendrites, accents, and support cells make up the human brain. These processes are far too complex to review in detail as volumes of journal articles and texts have been written in an attempt to describe the intricacies and complexities of the nervous system. 
from the moment of conception, the genetic blueprint contained within the DNA is set in motion and development proceeds rapidly. Early evidence of human brain and spinal cord developments have been noted as early as the third week post-conception. The neural groove is first seen at approximately day 20 to 21 post-conception. Then by the sixth week, reflex responses to touch have been noted. In the first trimester, fetal movements grow rapidly in frequency and complexity. In around seven weeks of pregnancy, only gross movements are visible. At the end of the first trimester, the fetus presents complex movements of the head, limbs, and fingers. Much of the neuronal development occurs between 8 and 18 weeks. In the abortion debate, fetal pain is controversial and complicated. When does the developing fetus actually feel and or respond to pain? How do we know when actions are responsive rather than reflexive? How do we measure response? By movements withdrawal from the noxious stimulant? Or can we measure endocrine hormonal responses to stress? It is even possible to answer these questions definitely since pain is subjective and is described as an emotional and psychological experience that requires conscious recognition of a noxious stimulus. Are these even the right questions to ask? What do we know so far? Though we have seen tremendous advances in neural imaging, such as 4D ultrasound, electroencephalography, magnetoencephalography, functional magnetic resonance imaging, etc., most of the studies involving fetal pain involve the second trimester as earlier prenatal data involving interconnectivity of the nervous system are not available. According to a 2005 report in the Journal of the American Medical Association, tests of cortical function suggest that conscious reception of pain does not begin before the third trimester. In March of 2010, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists from the UK issued a report in which they concluded the lack of cortical connections before week 24 therefore implies that pain is not possible until after 24 weeks. Even after 24 weeks, there is continuing development and elaboration of intracortical networks, yet fetal and doctrine responses to stress have been demonstrated from as early as 18 weeks gestation. Based on a review of literature and evidence thus far, we can at least infer that the fetus may experience pain between 18 and 24 weeks gestation. That said, science may prove this to be a false hypothesis in the future as more knowledge is gained and when there is more evidence to support pain earlier or later in fetal development. Not to minimize the importance of this debate, but is the question of fetal pain a rabbit trail? Brain development is a lifelong process. The point is not so much whether the fetus feels pain, a newborn is aware of self, or if a teenager can describe their emotions or even think rationally. The main point is that the fetus is a human. The stages of development of the neurologic system are part of the normal human growth and development. 
This is a process that occurs in every human being from conception on into adulthood. From conception, the DNA in that first cell orchestrates this innate process. The DNA is unique to the individual. It is their signature. It is this same DNA that guides differentiation from the first pluripotent stem cell into all of the complex, intricately interwoven and highly interdependent body systems. DNA can be obtained from a cigarette butt at a crime scene and not only confirms that the criminal was human, but it can identify the criminal by name through a DNA database. It is their own signature. Were you to be killed in a massive explosion, tissue fragments would not only recognize you as human, but would also identify your DNA signature by name, enabling your next of kin to be notified. DNA can be obtained from fragments, products of conception, fetal tissue, can confirm humanity and parentage. Only one question needs to be asked. Is the fetus a human being? If it is, then abortion is the taking of human life. This is a simple question. Whether it is the first cell at conception, a morula, a bladocyst, an embryo, a fetus, or a baby eight inches and a few minutes from birth, abortion at any moment is ending the process of normal human growth and development. With current technology, it is possible to capture images from conception to birth. The human genome has been mapped, opening our understanding to DNA. To deny the humanity is to deny science. Abortion ends a human life defined by DNA signature, as well as the innate complex pattern of growth and development of this life. Pope Francis' message for Lent 2023, We Need to Listen to Jesus by Hannah Brockhaus. In this message for Lent 2023, Pope Francis encouraged Catholics to listen to what Jesus wants to tell them through the scriptures and through others. Using the story of Jesus' transfiguration as a launching point, Francis addressed both the journey of Lent and the Catholic Church's ongoing synod on synodality in the message re released February 17th. The Pope recalled, the command that God the Father addresses to the disciples on Mount Tabor as they contemplate Jesus transfigured, the voice from the cloud says, listen to him. The first proposal then is very clear. We need to listen to Jesus, he said. Lent is a time of grace to the extent that we listen to him as he speaks to us. During this liturgical season, he continued, the Lord takes us with him to a place apart while our ordinary commitments compel us to remain in our usual places and our often repetitive and sometimes boring routines, during Lent we are invited to ascend a high mountain in the company of Jesus and to live a particular experience of spiritual disciple, assesses, as God's holy people. Pope Francis said one of the ways Jesus speaks to us is through the Word of God which we can hear at Mass. But if one cannot attend Mass during the week, it is a good idea to still read the daily readings of the liturgy the Pope encouraged. In addition to the Scriptures, the Lord speaks to us through our brothers and sisters, especially in the faces and the stories of those who are in need, he added. 
Francis' second suggestion for Lent was to confront the difficulties of ordinary life, remembering that Lent is a period that leads to Easter. Do not take refuge in a religious religiosity made up of extraordinary events and dramatic experiences out of fear of facing reality and its daily struggles, its hardships and contradictions, the Pope said. The light that Jesus shows the disciples in an, is in anticipation of Easter glory, and that must be the goal of our own journey as we follow him alone, he said. Lent leads to Easter. The retreat is not an end in itself, but a means of preparing us to experience the Lord's passion and cross with faith, hope, and love, and thus to arrive at the resurrection. Pope Francis compared the journey of Lent and the Church's ongoing synod on synodality to a strenuous mountain trek. While we hike up the mountain, we must keep our eyes on the path before us, but at the top we are rewarded by the beautiful panorama that confronts us. So too the synodal process may often seem arduous, he said, and at times we may become discouraged. Yet what awaits us at the end is undoubtedly something wondrous and amazing, which will help us to understand better God's will and our mission in the service of his kingdom. The Vatican's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development announced February 17th that it will hold a communication campaign based on Pope Francis' Lenten message. Beginning on Ash Wednesday, the Dicastery will present every week via its website a new step on the journey of Lent. The campaign, with him on the mountain, Lenten penance, and the synodal journey, will include reflection questions based on scripture passages and the post-message. The Lenten journey of penance and the journey of the Synod alike have as their goal a transfiguration, both personal and ecclesial. Pope Francis said, a transformation that in both cases has its model in the transfiguration of Jesus and is achieved by the grace of his paschal mystery. The Pope also spoke about the newness of Christ and his fulfillment of the ancient covenant. In a similar way, the synodal journey is rooted in the Church's tradition and at the same time open to newness. Tr tradition is a source of inspiration for seeking new paths and for avoiding the opposed temptations of immobility and improvised experimentation. Francis said, a Lenten penance is a commitment sustained by grace to overcoming our lack of faith and our resistance to following Jesus on the way of the cross. To deepen our knowledge of the Master, to fully understand and embrace the mystery of his salvation, accomplished in total self-giving and inspired by love, we must allow ourselves to be taken aside by him and to detach ourselves from mediocrity and vanity. We need to set out on the journey an uphill path that, like human track, requires effort, sacrifice, and concentration. Pray and fast for America, restoring America to its true foundation. Pray and fast for America is a grassroots movement of Catholics and Christians from around our country participating in a nationwide network of prayer and fasting. This movement was founded at the end of 2017 as the coalition group of the 26th International Week of Prayer and Fasting felt inspired 
to call for 365 days of masses, prayers, and fasting for our president, leaders, families, and the church. In 2020, we prayed and fasted for the conversion, divine guidance, and wisdom of our political and church leaders. For 2023, pray and fast for America is calling all prayer warriors to pray and fast for our nation, our families, and our leaders for a new American revolution, a spiritual revolution for the conversion of the American people and the restoration of our nation, for peace and to implore God's mercy on our nation, to build a culture of life, to defend the sanctity of marriage and family life, for all priests, religious vocations, and holiness of members of our church, to promote the purity of our youth, and for all to be consecrated to the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph, terror of demons, Join the Pray and Fast for America Coalition, Legion of Mary, Priests for Life, and many others in this battle for our country, our leaders, our families, the unborn, and the church. Visit prayerandfastforamerica.org. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-786. 7777.